guests with us today. I especially want to welcome you, say thank you so much for joining us. If this is your first time back in person with us, I want to say welcome home, and it's good to have you here. And you know that my hope and my prayer for you is the same as it is every single week for all of us, and that's no matter where you find yourself in your faith today, that you would take one step towards Jesus, because it's what we are all about here at Crossbridge, just going after Jesus. So I'm grateful that you're here. And you've come in the second week of our new series called Not What I Wanted. Not What I Wanted. And I'm positive today that many of you are saying this after the Giants beat the Eagles last week. (laughs) Yes, I had to get that in there. It'll be the last time I do, I promise. And um, I saw you sporting all your Eagles here coming in, so I have to take my little shot, don't I? Um, You knew I was going to get it. But, you know, it's funny. Once Thanksgiving hits... I always feel like from Thanksgiving through Christmas, we are in this mad dash. Does anybody else feel the rush that this season brings? Not rush like excitement, but rush like busy, go, push, move. And it's funny because we're told during this time, this is the time to slow down, to be with your friends, to be with your family, to connect with them in meaningful ways. And it's like, I'm just trying to survive this time. Maybe that works for some people, but I know for me, maybe it's true for you too, we spend most of our time dominated by extra hours at work because we're closing out books and trying to get things done. That there's these chorus and band concerts that that are shifting times and we want to make sure that we get it in to support our family. We've got these mandated shopping moments where we're buying gifts for people maybe that you don't even like what money we don't have and we're frustrated at this moment going, oh, what do I do with this? And then it's great because people say, would you come to my holiday party? Come to my Christmas this party like when when what, 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 what am i supposed to do this and it's funny because when we finally slow down to catch our breath and then we look at the full schedule ahead of us i'll be the first to tell you that in those moments i sit and say this is not what i wanted this busy this unrest in this season of peace I feel overly busy, and I feel rushed from one thing to the next. And I do wonder if God, in his great sovereignty, watches us as we exhale at the end of our day going, (sighs) and we're hoping to find a little peace. I wonder if God thinks to himself, well, that's not what I wanted. That's not what peace looks like. Because instead of a very quick breath that we have, the truth is God has given us an eternal gift of peace through Jesus Christ. A peace that is so much deeper, more fulfilling, and life-transforming than anything that our world could ever offer. But many of us, let's just be real, we look at the idea, the person of an infant savior, Messiah, and just like so many stop and say, "That's, that's not what I wanted. We saw this last week as we looked at the idea of of what hope is and how the nation of Israel could look at an infant Jesus and say, that's not where hope is, that's not what I wanted. And yet Mary found herself in a place where she sang a new song and she sang her way right to hope. And when it comes to our second week here, our candle of peace and a week of peace, I truly do believe that we need to know peace in order to bring peace that we need to know peace in order to bring peace. And and when I say 
no peace. I'm not talking about, you know, just being the person who's not causing fights when we walk into a situation, um, you know, just trying to be nice in this season to people. I am talking, when I say we need to know peace, I am talking about being personally at peace. That being in a position where we would walk around and we would be the breaths of fresh air for the busy, chaotic, rushed world around us. They are tired, they are exhausted, they are hurting. And unfortunately, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we step right into this and become part of the problem, not the breaths that I believe God has intended for us to be because, let's be honest, I believe this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. That we are called to pray for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. And in this new kingdom, it will not be a place of chaos and rush, of mandates and responsibilities. There will be a peace that surpasses all understanding. And, and I do think that God was trying to teach the nation of Israel about this peace, as well as Mary and Joseph. And so just like last week, I'd love to look at this idea of you need to know peace in order to bring peace at both Israel and Mary and Joseph, and then bring it together just like we did last week. So we're going to look at them separately and then come together. Sound good? All right. When it comes to Israel's view uh, and, and their desire for peace, I will just be upfront. It is an unbelievably messy story. If you look into Jewish history, it is an unbelievably messy story. But what I'm positive of is there is a, a, a moment where the prophet Isaiah says something that we are familiar with that was read for us today. In Isaiah chapter 9, he says this to this nation of Israel. In verse 6, he says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And what's his last title? Let's say it one more time. Prince of Peace. This is what they were longing for, the Prince of Peace. And his government and its peace will never end. This is what the prophet Isaiah said a coming Messiah would bring. I am positive this nation could long for this because as you read through the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures, from the moment you start into your exodus when they leave Egypt to head into the promised land, let me tell you, their story's a hot mess. Right? You're getting through numbers. You're all done. It's a hot mess, isn't it? This is such a crazy story because um, you want to talk about peace in the Middle East? It's hard to do. You ready for a little crash course of Israel to get to a place of why they would long for this Prince of Peace? And when I say crash course, there's no real way to sum up their story. But I'm going to do my best in a, in a couple minutes here to give you an overview. So I'm going to need you to lock in with me here and buckle up. Here's the deal. Israel and this nation has known nothing but conflict. From the moment that they have come together, left Egypt, and they begin to take over this promised land from God. And so they are constantly at war with every single tribe that gets in the way of where they are to get into the land. Once they get into the land, they are now at war after a season of peace with each other. And we have this giant civil war that divides the entire land. And you got a north part, you got a south part. And this prince of peace that they're waiting for is not coming, especially after one nation 
and another begins to invade Israel. And they're like, where's this peace? Where's this warrior? And when the northern kingdom, this top half of Israel, is taken over by Assyria, there's no prince of peace there. And they're taken away. And then about 586 BCE, what you find is this Babylonian empire. These are the worst people ever in that time. Like they just, they were horrible, horrible people. They came in and they took over the southern kingdom, Judah. They took them out and they left what's called a remnant, this small bit of people in Jerusalem, the capital city, but everybody else they took into exile. They became, for all intents and purposes, Babylonians. They were trying to indoctrinate them with their way of life. So what do you do when there's no prince of peace there? Well, the Babylonians do get what's coming to them, and the Persian Empire comes in and takes them out. And we do read about Cyrus, who's this amazing Persian king who looks at this little group of Israelites in Babylon and goes, y'all don't belong here. You can go home. What? You could go home and go ahead, build your temple, build your, like, you go, go back to Jerusalem, it's fine. Go back to Judah. And so he lets them go, gives them all this stuff to rebuild their temple, and things are at peace as Israel becomes this Persian province. It's not so bad. Well, it's not so bad because that's where we really leave it. If you turn in your Bibles to Malachi, that's the end of our Old Testament, and then there's one page that falls in between that and Matthew. And this is about 400 years of time. We kind of like, oh, well, they went from kind of getting back to Jesus. You know, that one page of 400 years, a lot happens. One of the biggest moments is in about 330 BCE, Alexander the Great comes through. Alexander the Great comes with this fervency and he brings the Greek culture straight through and takes over Israel. And now, believe it or not, the Israelites... They really like a lot of parts of the Greek culture, and they adopt them. And as they adopt them, it's, it's not so bad. It's like, this works. And then around 170 BCE, we find that Anti Antiochus Epiphanes. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. He comes through, and he starts to put a different kind of pressure when it comes to the culture on the Jewish people. They adapted to the things they liked. But in 170, he's about to lay the hammer down and say, you need to reject all of the pieces of your history. You're one of us. And this ignited a massive, massive war and a revolt from the Jews. Does anybody know what this revolt is called? What is it? Someone say it nice and loud. The Maccabees. This is the Maccabean revolt. And if you're like, wait, we don't have those books in our Bible. Yeah, you need a Catholic Bible to read those books. They're, they're you know, great books of history here. And so the Maccabeans, they come up and they are the ones who fight back and kind of push this Greek culture and Roman culture away from them. And you have Judas Maccabeus who restores the temple. And this is what the celebration of Hanukkah is all about. The festival of lights. Today is day seven of Hanukkah, so to our you know, Jewish friends and family, happy Hanukkah to you in day seven. Well, Judas Maccabeus, a few people thought this might be the Messiah. He's restoring some peace here. Most people didn't. They knew this was not it. But they're pretty much at peace for a couple of decades. But in true fashion for Israel, do you know what they do? They fight with each other. 
And now we have another civil war that happens in this in-between time. And while they are at their weakest, the Roman army, which we looked at that whole armor in our last SWAT series, with their masterful tactics comes in and so easily takes over Jerusalem as a major post. And they are not going to let the Jews come back and fight against them. And so they become more oppressive. And depending on who the ruler is at the time, it becomes this unbelievably cantankerous relationship. There is this longing for the prophecy of Isaiah from all of Israel. Where is our wonderful counselor? Where is our prince of peace? Because nothing in the last couple of centuries, and at this point, centuries upon centuries since we had you know, Isaiah say all these things, guess what? There's been no peace. At what point do you begin to push for peace when you can't find it? How do you make peace happen on your own? Because this desire is actually the history. This is the story. This is the context in which Jesus was born. Jesus, the Messiah, the very one who has come to bring peace, is born into this anxious and restless nation. If we're being really honest, we could look at this nation and say, I get it. I, I totally get it. Why would you look to an infant in a side room of a home with a bunch of animals and say, that's my Prince of Peace? We would all say, if we're being honest, that's, that's not what I wanted. And so the nation does what they do and they pass on this Messiah. This is not the Messiah we wanted. And Jesus grows. We know his story as we read them, his biographies, that he lives the perfect life. He is crucified. He is uh, buried after his death, and he resurrects from the dead. And now there's this sect of Jewish people who say, we believe this is the Messiah, but for the most part, no one believes this. Actually, Jesus seemed to cause more disruption than peace. This is not my Prince of Peace. And so do you know what they do? They reject it, and now they're more frustrated at the Romans they can't find peace, but there's this little group that has peace. So at about 70, maybe it's about 67, 68 AD, they're starting to get really ticked at the Romans. They're done. And so they start this massive rebellion. And in 70 CE, this revolt that happens actually stirs up the Romans to say, we are sick and tired of you. This little city you got going on here, it's time to be done. And they completely destroy the city, burn the temple to the ground because they don't want to deal with these people. And the Israelites, again, are done waiting. Where's the Prince of Peace? In about 132 CE, they actually find a man who's passionate. They believe he might be the Messiah. His name is Simon Bar Kokhba. His name is it means uh, son of star in Aramaic, son of star. They believed he was it. He raises up this guerrilla warfare type of attack on the Romans and actually gets control of the city. He overthrows the Roman government. They get so excited, the Jews, about Simon Bar Kokhba. And what he does is he's, he's so established for two and a half years, this guy actually has coins minted with his, with like, the time of peace has come. It is time for a new Jerusalem to be established. Let's do it. And they are so excited 
Rome does not see this so favorably. If they thought raising the city 60 years ago was bad, every historian writes about the bloodbath that would ensue where Rome gathers an entire one-third of their global army, marches on this rebellion, and writes of miles upon miles. One historian actually says it was about 40 miles of blood that continued to trail with the absurd amount of, uh, it was a half of a million Jews in the city that were completely killed and millions upon millions or uh, hundreds of thousands that were exiled. There would be no peace. I give you that history because I, I feel like for many of us, we can listen to a story of Israel like that and go, oh man, history's tough. Like, I can't believe they kept forcing it. Like, why couldn't they just wait for that promise to happen? Why couldn't they see it in Jesus? And let's be real, we all do this, don't we? We force peace into places where there is none. We don't come as people of peace. We are not at peace. So we bring this wildly chaotic internal self into situations in our family, at work, at school, and then we try to force peace and create false peace. We don't deal with conflict in healthy ways. We decide to ignore conflict and run from it and, and just sweep things under the carpet and say, I'm being a person of peace, but we're not because we still carry that with us, don't we? We don't have the courage to say no to things and say, I'm going to wait and not do that thing because I'm tired. I'm not gonna say yes to that party. I'm not going to say yes to buying that present. But we don't have enough internal peace and security to do that, so we say yes to please people and create false peace. We do the very thing that Israel does, and we force our definition of peace. But Mary and Joseph grew up in this world of chaos, didn't they? This is the world that they were born into as well. They were anxiously awaiting this Prince of Peace. So when news comes from the angel to both of them that you're about, to, you're about to change your whole trajectory in life because you're pregnant and you're gonna be the father of the son of God. And you're like, oh, no pressure there, right? Yeah. What do you do with your expectations? You have to completely shift them. I'm, I do wonder, did Mary and Joseph think about this prophecy in Isaiah 9? We're like, he's gonna be the prince of peace. This is gonna be the ultimate baby who never cries, right? He'll never, like when he's hungry, he's not screaming. You know, a, a, a dirty cloth, he's not, he's not freaking out. If he's tired, oh, he'll go right to bed, no problem. Right? No way, you do not have a baby to introduce peace to your home. Lots of love, lots of joy, but peace is not the term that I would use. But let's look at Mary and Joseph's journey to peace with the Prince of Peace. It says this in, in Luke chapter two. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd love to, for you to turn to the biography of Jesus written by Dr. Luke. We were there last week. It says this in Luke chapter two. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor in Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee 
and he took with him Mary, whom he was engaged and who is now expecting a child. Now, she's super a lot of months pregnant, and the census comes in. A census is very simply in this context. It's like when we get those things in the mail to say, fill this out, or someone comes to your door saying, please do these things. It's, it's, it's an opportunity here for the Roman government to flex how big they are. And they want to know who goes where for tax purposes, so they collect what they feel like is due theirs. This is not an ideal time for a nine-month pregnant lady to jump on a donkey and decide to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is about a 65-mile journey, okay? Normally, this could have taken three days, four days. We're positive with her. It's going to take longer. You, you can't just travel at the same pace. And so it's a five to six day journey to get there. You cannot go alone because as Jewish travelers, the road that you would take would be filled with robbers, thieves. You would get jumped on your way. So you've got to listen around. Who else is going? If no one else is going from your town, guess what you've got to do? You've got to hire people to go with you. When you're nine months pregnant, you're not spending money on things you don't need. You're getting ready. I don't know what that was like but I'm pretty certain there was a lot of issues. I think in our culture, it's 36 weeks um, that you're not allowed or they encourage you not to fly if you're pregnant. 36 weeks. So now we've got a woman who's a week away from delivery. How many of you, if you've delivered a child, are super excited about a donkey ride at that point? <laughs> right? You're like, oh, sign me up. I'm delivering one mile in. Like, I'm forcing this kid out not to do this. But you have this issue where they're headed now, this is a layer that's a little weird, they're headed home. And I know it's like, wait, but they lived somewhere else. They're going to Joseph's home. Most of his family would have w already lived there. We know that, that these families continue to live in community, but Joseph and Mary live somewhere else. Do you think the fact that she was pregnant and everyone's assuming that they slept together outside of the context of this marriage covenant that happened has anything to do with the fact that they live somewhere else? I, I don't know. But I bet you that there's some family tension here. What's that conversation look like for five to six days? What's your aunt going to say this year? You know, we're worried about weird political conversations here. You got nothing but that and a family overlay of they think we are nothing but horrible people. So they do arrive. They're counted. And this is the point at which Mary delivers. And we read this in verse 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. We, we always talk in this story about how there's no room in the inn. And the truth is that Mary and Joseph most likely would never have stopped at an inn because it wouldn't have been kosher. Right, so most Jew, traveling Jews stayed with other Jewish people because they could eat. And so they would have likely stayed with their family who lived in this city, but it's already full. All the extra rooms are taken, and so they would have stayed in a side room that was usually built onto a house. The city has swelled with probably at this point an extra 10,000 people. And Mary and Joseph likely would have been at Joseph's family's or relative's home. And at the end of the night, they gather their goats, they gather their donkeys, the ones that everyone's taken to travel, and they put them in a side room so they don't wander at night. And this is the room. 
that Mary and Joseph are in. Surrounded by family on the other side of the wall, most likely, and yet nothing but animals next to them. And it's here where it smells, where there's animal sounds, and everybody's sleeping over there, and you're delivering the Prince of Peace over here. For the last nine months, it's anything but peace for them, isn't it? It's angel visits, surprise pregnancies, explaining to parents, hey, hey, you didn't do anything wrong, I swear, it's God's kid. And then the census and now this side room delivery, where is the peace? Where is the peace? And if this wasn't enough, right after Mary delivers, they wait, you know, eight days for Jesus to be circumcised. And then once uh, Mary is considered at a place where she can go to uh, be cleansed at the temple, they do bring, um, or they, they, Jesus is um, born. And then the first visiting guests, it's shepherds. Really, this is the teenagers you try to get out of your house and say, go do something outside. Your first guests are these type of people. This is not what I wanted. None of this is what I wanted. And then he gets circumcised. They bring him uh, on a, it's a half a day's trip over to Jerusalem to be dedicated at the temple. And as soon as they get to the temple, he's an infant. This weird moment happens. It's so weird. I find it weird when there's someone who comes up to a pregnant lady and says, can I touch your stomach? Weird thing, right? Don't touch someone you don't know stomach. Don't t- as a matter of fact, don't touch people you don't know. Just weird. Don't do it. Good rule of thumb. There's this dude named Simeon who's been waiting in the temple. And when Mary and Joseph show up with their infant, he comes up and, and this is so weird. Check this out. Verse 25, jump down there with me in Luke chapter two. It says, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a righteous and devout and was eagerly awaiting for the Messiah to come to rescue Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He's, he's like the rest of the nation, isn't he? He's excited for Messiah. He's waiting. Where's the peace? And I'm sure that we read here that it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. Do you remember when Mary walked into Martha and the Spirit kind of, they spoke to each other. There was something there. I'm sure there had to have been something because as he begins to hold Jesus in his arms, this beautiful song erupts from him. And let's just be don't take someone's kid. But he does because there's something when the Holy Spirit brings unity between people. You're no longer strangers, you are family. And he holds this child in his arms and in the first line of his song, he says, Sovereign Lord, in verse 29, now let your servant die in what? Let me die in peace as you have promised. This is all Simeon wanted, to see, to know, to hold and to keep the prince of peace. He was not waiting for a warrior. It wasn't just about a national peace that he was looking for. This was for him. This was personal. And this was exactly what he wanted. He had held and he had kept peace. And now he was able to bring peace. And I know that because if you jump to the end in verse 33, it says this was Mary and Joseph's response. They were amazed at what was being sent about, said about him. He kept peace. He knew peace. Therefore, he could bring peace. What a beautiful, beautiful story. I'm sure that, that Mary and Joseph talked about these things before Jesus was born, but 
I don't know how this man could look at a child and see what so few others did other than the fact that he was anxiously awaiting and he never rushed. He had the patience to stop, to wait. I mean, talk about peace, right? But this peace for Mary and Joseph does not last long. They have to go back to Bethlehem, and they do. They stay there. When they go back to Bethlehem, I, I wonder if there was resolution with Joseph and his family because a child has this way of bringing unity again. Because when infant Jesus turns into toddler Jesus, this is the moment our magi, our wise men, come to visit with gifts from the east. And as they come to drop these gifts off, it's, it's really odd because you do not give a toddler gold, frankincense, and myrrh, do you? These are not toddler-friendly gifts, but while they're hugely symbolic of Jesus' life, these were not for Jesus as much as they were for Mary and Joseph because they're going to need the finances that these gifts brought. They're going to need them because at the news of this new Jewish Messiah, the wise men stopped to talk to Herod. And Herod, our ruler of the time, you know what he basically says? That's not what I wanted. <laughs> Whether I believe that this is really the Messiah or not, I know what, what this calls for, and that means he's a king. I don't want this. I rule, not him. And so, in panic... We find this moment in Matthew chapter 2. He goes to have every kid two years old and younger in this region killed. And we read this in verse 13 of Matthew 2. It says, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, said the angel. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. Yo, you got another late night run. In panic and rush, it's time to go to Egypt. This is like the, the don't go there land for the Israelites. This is where you came out of in slavery, and now you're going to go back? You're going to go back to Egypt? But the angel says, you got to go or you're going to run. I mean, how many connections do you have in Egypt that you're just like, oh, let me go there? Y you don't. They have to completely, in the middle of the night, gather up everything, including a toddler, and say, it's time to go. I, I wonder if, like, Black Widow in that movie took their prerequisite from here. Like, you only got, like, an, a half hour. We got to go. Now's the time. Why? For your life. And off they go. There's no connections. There's no work. There's, what do you have? Well, you have unrest, rushed, busy, and now to figure out a new way of life. Is not what I wanted. There's no peace there. There's no peace in Egypt. It's about approximately two and a half years or so, they believe, maybe three and a half years that they stay there. They do figure out how to live. And once they catch the rhythm, Herod eventually dies, and an angel says, it's time to go back. You can go back now. And so they do what they do best, and Joseph's like, we're going back to Bethlehem. That's where my family is. We can get back to fam. Let's get some routine. Let's get some rhythm. And in verse 21, if you jump down in Matthew 2, it says, so Joseph got up, returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that a new ruler, and the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left the region of Galilee. Guess what? You're not going home. 
You're not going home. You're actually going back to the place that this all started. You're not in mortal danger anymore, but at this point, you cannot go home to Bethlehem because that's Herod's son's going to be looking for you. It's not even worth throwing the flags up. If you're looking for peace, it's not there. It's not where you were. It's, it's right where it all began. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Mary and Joseph, and the very place I left when the census started, and now five years later, after how many moves, how many rushes, how many death threats, where is this prince of peace, and how is this kid bringing peace? Their, their early story isn't pleasant, it isn't pretty, it isn't peaceful at all. It is rushed, it is hurried, it is full. And in the entire journey, in their arms, they held the Prince of Peace. With every change of location and environment, who they held and knew never changed. He stayed consistent. Yes, he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor. But he never changed. And with each change, that family knew that they had to keep the peace so that they might bring the peace. Even in the midst of the changing world, they had to learn to be patient. They had to wait on God for every next move that they could take. And I need to tell you that you will never, ever, ever experience peace without patience. Let me say that again just so you can get it because we hate patience in our culture. You cannot experience peace without patience. And this is what Advent is all about. It is about patience. That Christ has made a way for us. He has made it possible for us to, to live patiently in a world of impatience. And we know that because the nation of Israel was tired waiting, but they wanted to rush into this Messiah with this collective idea of internal like, thoughts and expectations. And then these outside frustrations, they destroyed any sense of peace and patience they had, and it led to massive death and destruction. Mary and Joseph, though, even amidst the chaos and the outside, they could internally hold their peace whether it was in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Egypt, Nazareth, they brought peace with them. And as I look at this candle of peace, I mean, I, I recognize this is an electronic flame. We can't really watch this candle burn down in an LED light. We're not staring at this for how many hours? But if there was a candle that was lit, a candle of peace, can I tell you how I feel like most of us live not waiting for this to burn at its own pace, we live by turning it upside down to rush the life that we have to get to the bottom of this wick quicker, never being patient, but always not even burning the candle at both ends. We are snuffing our life out by rushing and pushing like we do. God looks at our exhale at the end of the day where maybe we turn our candle like this as we exhale and he says that, that is not what I wanted. We are living a life, and God says, this is not the way it has to be. But I need to tell you today, with patience, you find peace, but you have to want peace. I like the way that John Maine says this. He's a Benedictine monk. He says, we have to decide that we want to be at peace. This is the reason for the psalmist saying, be still and know that I am God. This deep inner peacefulness 
is in a sense more freely available for us today than it was for the Hebrew poet who wrote the psalm, even if our problems are greater and our pace of life is faster than his were. And this is because of the great fact of what? It's because of Jesus. If we want peace, it is not going to come from anything the world has to offer. We could try those vacations to push hard. We can buy every product to make things more simple, and we could try to live on their schedule, and I will tell you, we will always be left saying, that is not what I wanted. And I wonder if God watches us exhale as we try all of these things. And says, this is not what I wanted for you. I have given you the gift of Jesus, that even in the midst of the chaos around you, you may know peace. Know him personally. Let him rule you internally so that you would be the breath and could take that peace with you to those around you. Have we kept union with Jesus? Or have we kept union with the world? Because we need to know peace in order to bring peace. So today as we close, I just want to ask you, do you know peace? Are you at a place where people want to be around you because they find breath? Or do you create chaos? Do you know Jesus, the very Prince of Peace who was promised? Or do you force peace and in doing so create so much pain that's unnecessary? If you don't know Jesus, I just want to take a moment to invite you into that. By simply saying to God, I, I recognize I'm not at peace, that I have sinned, that there's something in between you and me, and I want to choose to accept this gift of Jesus that you have given to the world so that I might have peace, know peace, and then bring peace. This is the desire of your heart. Would you just pray with me really quick? Jesus, I want to know you. I need peace because I feel so lost. I confess that there is sin in my life that separates me from you. And I ask for your forgiveness. I ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit so that I may know the peace that you knew and that I might, that I might bring it to others. Holy Spirit, fill me. Jesus, thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with us today, would you do me a favor and just, if you came with a friend, let them know today so that they know if you're watching with us online, we would love for you to let us know so that we can just help you take your next step in faith. And to close in prayer together today um, before Jeff comes to lead us in communion. I'd love to pr just pray a prayer, an ancient prayer from St. Francis of Assisi, and I've been praying and singing this prayer every day in Advent right now, and it's brought me a lot of peace. It's centered me and been my great morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. So um, would you just stand with me and pray with me 
these great words of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Let's pray together. You pray it out loud with me, nice and strong. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Allow us to be people of peace, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take communion together.